recognize it all. <clears throat> so, this is my attempt at a short sermon for those of you who are visiting. Um, these are two remarkably similar experiences, right? Um, you've got two devout people. Um, an angel appears to them. They both receive a message that they're going to have a son. Um, they ask a question. They get a response. And the thing that's promised actually happens, right? So, fairly similar events. And the angel, same one. Same, same one, Gabriel, right? But there's a little—there is a very significant dissimilarity in this passage, and that is that when the two human individuals ask their question, they get very different kinds of responses, don't they? Um, so Zechariah gets a rebuke and a punishment. Mary gets an explanation and encouragement, right? Zechariah says, hey, um, how do I know this is going to happen? Because I'm, I'm really old, and my wife is really old, and we've been trying to have a kid for like decades. And Gabriel's response is, hey, hey, yo, pay, try to pay attention. I'm Gabriel, okay? We're in the temple. I'm standing in the presence of God, and this is supposed to be good news, right? So, because you didn't believe this, you're going to be mute for about a year um, because you couldn't even speak with faith about the thing your own mouth spoke with supposed hypocritical faith when you prayed for this. Do you remember how it started? Gabriel says, Zechariah, guess what? Your prayer has been answered. And it's a little, it's a little spiritually hypocritical when you pray for something for a couple of decades and it happens and you go, how can I know? <laughs> right? And then one verse later, right? Mary, the, the angel says this, and she asks a very similar question, right? Hey, uh, I'm a virgin, so uh, how is this going to come about that I'm going to be pregnant? And um, Gabriel's answer is a little vague. It's not real specific. He just says, listen, God is going to inexplicably kind of come upon you and cause you to be pregnant. It's not going to be weird like a Greek myth, and you don't need to go looking for it like Abraham, okay? So just sit tight. It's going to happen. When it happens, just know it's from God, and it's great, okay? And, and Mary's response is, oh, and then, and then he goes, oh, and in case, Mary, you need a little encouragement— your relative Elizabeth, who's been barren for decades, she's in her sixth month. So run down there and meet up with her and, right? And you can kind of just imagine Mary showing up and running into Elizabeth and they have their little sweet moment, right? But can you imagine dinner time, right? Elizabeth and Mary and Zachariah are all sitting around, right? And, <laughs> and Mary's like, Mary's like, and then this angel showed up and he said his name was Gabriel. And he said, I was going to have a son. I'm a virgin. How am I supposed to have a son? But he said, God was just going to kind of make it happen. And then I asked him this question. I was like, how can I be? And, and he just gave me this sweet answer. He said, Mary, it's just going to sort of happen. And if you need encouragement, Elizabeth is pregnant. You should go see her because nothing's impossible with God. And you can just imagine Zachariah going, Come on, Gabriel. Come on. Right? I don't know if I'm just a guy and I like to take the guy's side in the story, but that's a little odd. I mean, how do you account for the very significant difference between the response Zachariah got and the response Mary got? Right? And here's why I think, okay? They're two very different kinds of questions. They look kind of similar on the front. Both essentially offer a scientific objection, right? We're old. How's it going to happen? We don't have a good track record for fertility. I'm a virgin. That doesn't normally happen. But 
aside from those um, similarities on the surface, Zechariah is not asking for further clarification, is he? He doesn't need more information. He has all the information he could possibly want and more about what this child will become. And the question he asks is, how can I know this is going to happen? Well, what do you want? Like a space-time fast-forward manual button something? Right? Like, you just wait, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cynical question. It's a, it's a skeptical question. Listen, you've got to cut Jeremiah some slack because you pray for something for 20 years and it doesn't happen. It'll do that to you sometimes if you're not careful. That doesn't mean it's right. It's just normal. And so, Gabriel gives him exactly what he needs. Cynical people, they don't need explanations. They don't need clarification. Cynical people need confrontation. That's what they need. Because it's not an information problem. It's a, it's a psychological problem. It's an attitude problem. And the way you fix attitude problems is with rebuke, pain, humiliation, confrontation. Mary's a different story. She's just like, what do you want me, what do you want me to do? I'm a virgin. How is this going to happen? She, she really is genuinely confused. She needs information. And so Gabriel supplies it. Don't go looking for it, sweetie. Just sit tight. It's just going to happen. Just be glad. And one of the things I think we need to recognize um, is that God is loving enough to supply you and me and these people with exactly what they need. And, it's, and God isn't fair and shouldn't be fair. He gives people what they need. And if, if one person needs painful, humiliating, rebuking confrontation— so that they have the opportunity to come to repentance, to come out of that cynicism and believe and enjoy the good news that they've been praying for all those years, then guess what? God was loving enough through Gabriel to give Zechariah exactly what he needed. And when he came to Mary and she was genuinely confused and searching and wondering what to believe, he gave her exactly what she needed. Information. Clarification. So it's good news that, first, God provides conflict for cynics and skeptics. That's good news. You should read the story of Zechariah and say, that is, some, that is some good news. Now listen, just because God supplies conflict for us doesn't mean that we're going to listen to it. You can give—you know this from your own life. You can offer something that that's offers conflict to somebody in an extremely loving way in what can happen. They can shut you down, not listen, end the relationship, cool off towards you, all kinds of stuff. Just because you offer something, what love requires does not mean they're going to respond, but love still requires it. And that's what he gets. And you see this all through the Bible. You can go back to Genesis, and you can get Sarah talking back to God. I didn't laugh and go, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. And you better accept that that was your attitude so that you can turn around from it, right? Peter gets rebuked a whole bunch of times. There's all kinds of examples of God really giving direct rebukes to people, and this is one of them. You're not going to speak for the better part of a year. Which, you know, he's going to have a pregnant wife, so he probably needs to do more listening and talking anyway. <laughs> but, um, but that's the response, right? And, you know, when somebody has that kind of cynicism, you can't just give information. You've got to confront them. Because that's what cynicism requires. And generally speaking, when we get cynical, we just kind of get cynical and we just chalk up everything to chance. 
and we don't want to see any purpose or divine providence behind it. And so you, but once you chalk everything up to chance, you can't see when God answers a prayer. You can't see when there's God's providence in something. You can't get any direction from anything and you can't see God anywhere. And believing everything is chance is always a self-fulfilling prophecy because you can always come up with some kind of weird explanation to make sure that chance is sufficient. Chance is always sufficient. Um, let me give you just an example of this. Um, one of the leaders of the New Atheist Movement 10 years ago was a guy named Anthony Flew. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he, he actually debated Bill Craig down at UW maybe 12, 13 years ago now. Um, and uh, he's famous for popularizing the atheistic mantra that if you put enough monkeys— in a room with a typewriter, not, not this yet. Oh yeah, I guess, yeah, leave that up there. Um, if you put enough monkeys in a room with a typewriter for long enough, they'll produce all the great works of Shakespeare, right? Which is philosophically true, in theory, right? That is philosophically true in theory. And, and the idea there is you can explain an atheistic view of the world by just backing down to that every time. Well, if there's a problem with how it works, listen, if we've got an infinite amount of time, and an infinite amount of replications of chance, then everything can happen. You can get all the works of Shakespeare. Well, something kind of funny happened. Some years later, um, the British, one of the British societies actually gave some PhD students some money to sort of try this out and see how it worked. And they, like, no kidding, got chimpanzees and got a typewriter and put it in a room. I've stolen this from a talk by Michael Ramsden, by the way. So, Truth in Advertising. And it's on my Facebook page, and you can watch the whole thing. Um, and aside from using the typewriter as a toilet— they did produce six typed pages. Um, and the interesting thing is that there was not one English word in six typed pages. Not one. And you might go, wait, wait a second, not A or I? Right? Well, here's the thing. In order to get a, a, a single letter word, you've got to have a space on either side. And if you've got 30 characters on a keyboard, that's 1 in 30 times 1 in 30 times 1 in 30. So to get a one letter word, it's a 1 in 27,000 chance just to get I. Well, I is even worse because you'd have to push shift and we can't even get into that. But just lowercase a is 1 in 27,000. And so they, they said, okay, if this is the results we get from actually trying this, let's just figure out what it would require in terms of randomization to get um, the works of Shakespeare. But then they realized that there's no way to do that math. So they said, what if we narrowed it down to just one 14-line Shakespearean sonnet? May I compare thee to a summer's day, Right? 14 lines, 288 characters. Um, and what they, what they figured was, just for that, you would have to get randomizations of 1 of 10 to the 689th power. Now, that is a number that if you were to refer to it as astronomical, that would be a wild understatement. That is a number so astronomical that I don't think a human mind can begin to conceive of its possibilities. For example, if you took every particle in the universe, neutron, proton, and electron, all of them, and you added the, the current scientific, not Christian, but just scientific community estimate for how many of those particles are in the universe is 10 to the 80th. And you've got to remember that 10 to the 81st is 10 times 10 to the 80th. Every one is an exponential increase over the last one. And so the researchers ended up putting it this way. If you took—go ahead and go to the next slide there. If, if you were to take every particle in the universe and turn it into a particle-sized microcomputer, 
That's 10 to the 80th, okay? And each of those tiny microcomputers, a million times a second, created a random throw out of 288 characters. And you had it running not even since the beginning of the world, that 4 billion is actually wrong, but since the beginning of the universe, according to the oldest scientific guess we have, that would get you 10 to the 90th trials. Which means the universe would only have to be 10 to the 600th times older in order to possibly create this. And listen, guys, this is just the randomization for a 14-line, 288-character sonic. Sonnet, not 1,275 pages of Shakespeare, which might be slightly simpler than the complexity of the universe, but apparently monkeys can do it every time. Now, the interesting thing about that argument—see, people have been telling Anthony Flew he'd been wrong about that for years. Forty years he'd been a public debating atheist. People had said he was wrong. But see, the thing about this is it's not just—it's not just a, hey, you're wrong. It's humiliating. I mean, it makes believing that you can generate a 14-line sonnet look stupid. And it's very—it'll do something to you. And see, that's what's needed sometimes to change our minds. It's not just information. Somebody has to tell you—I mean, have you ever tried to get somebody who's being unreasonable to be reasonable by using logic or reason? If somebody's—if you say, hey, you're being unreasonable, and then you give them reasons, and they go, oh, yeah, you're right, then by definition, you were wrong. Right? You've got to say, hey, you're being unreasonable. Get a hold of yourself. And and that kind of thing is necessary. And you know what happened? Anthony Flew actually changed his mind. His next book was, um, I think there's a God. And here's why. And it was based on this, what's called the teleological argument. Um, now, here's, here's the issue. It's really easy to make fun of atheists in church, isn't it? That's really easy. But you look at this passage, and who's the skeptic? The pastor is the skeptic. The guy who is among the priest class who's chosen to do the holiest thing you can possibly do in the worship of God in the temple on the day of the burning of incense, that guy. You know why? Because cynicism and skepticism isn't an atheist agnostic problem, is it? It's a human problem. We all get bad biases that lock us down mentally. We all do that. To the point where we can pray for something for decades, and it can happen, and we cannot recognize it. Right? And the kind of, the kind of conflict which creates pain and rebuke and even humiliation is the loving option that God has. And listen, you've got, here's the, here's the important thing. You've got to be able to recognize it when it happens or, or what's going to happen. If you don't recognize the pains from God, you're just going to get mad and you're just going to double down, right? And here's the thing. It doesn't feel loving when it happens. I mean, have you ever, have you ever thought about this? If, if I put a person in front of you who didn't know you were there, and I said, okay, now listen. I want you to give this guy a kick in the pants. Just a good one, okay? But make it, a, make it a loving kick in the pants. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you do that? How do you, I mean, how, you, it's just, it, it feels the same. It feels the same. And Gabriel, or um, Zachariah, he probably didn't like it very much. But it, here's, but it was what he required. And you can say, no, I was just confused. I didn't need that pain. Well, you know what? Maybe you're wrong. 
Because here, here's what I think, in, in, this, in this story, there's two different characters, one who's confused and one who's cynical, but in, in our real lives, we're both, aren't we? You've got times where you're really confused and you just need information, you cry out to God for it, or you look for it and you try to find it. And then there's other times where you think that you're just confused, but you're really cynical. I know I've been, on, I've been both of those many times. And I know, I just, I've, I've come to the point, that hope, God, please let me realize when you have to be, when you have to humiliate me, when you have to rebuke me, when you have to hurt me, because I think I'm confused, but I'm really just cynical. And I can't even recognize the thing I've prayed for. And recognize that that's exactly what love requires. And then the second thing is, that um, God provides the honest doubter with sufficient clarity. There's a number of verses that talk about this. Let me just read them for you quickly. Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And then you will call to me and you will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That, was, that came from the darkest day of the history of the Israelites when they were in exile in a, in a country trying to destroy them. He said that to them. In Luke eleven nineteen, Jesus says this, I say this to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be opened. And he wasn't just saying, that, that's not supposed to be, you're not supposed to say, and be like, oh man, I can make some money on that one. No, the focus there is to know God specifically in relation to him pouring out the Holy Spirit, really. It's that if you seek God, you'll find him. If you knock to find God, you'll find him. In, in Hebrews eleven six, it says this, And without faith, it's impossible to please God. But anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. But what's presumed in that? What's presumed in that is that if you come to him, and you believe that he exists, and you earnestly seek him, that he will provide what's lacking. And in Jude one twenty two it says this, Be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to them. They're in a tough place. They're confused. You need to, you don't, don't, re- try to recognize the difference between skepticism and doubt, and don't rebuke the person who's in doubt. Try to find a way to clarify for them, because they're in a difficult place. And be merciful to them, because that happens to people. And God is interested in supplying the needs of the person who's confused. He's interested in bringing clarification, right? Now, I want you to see the result of, of both of these because this is, this is important. And that is that the end for both Zechariah and Mary is worship. For both of them. Somewhere in the year of muteness, Zechariah accepts that he needed a kick in the pants that he was supposed to believe the good news when it came to him. And the reason he didn't believe it wasn't because he didn't have enough information, but it was because he didn't believe. He wouldn't even believe in the thing he prayed for. And that all the cynicism that came from all the pain that he'd been through in his life, all the difficulties that he suffered that made him feel like it was legitimate to not believe easily, that all of that ultimately had just blinded him. And so what he needed was a kick in the pants. And God loved him enough to give him a sufficient one to give him some time to think about how his mouth should be used so he could think about how his heart should be used. And when he came out the other side, he was willing to praise and worship the one who had humiliated and impained him. It says in 
Luke 1, 64, it says this. This is when they named John the eighth day after he was born. He, he writes on a tablet, no, his name has to be John, not Zechariah. And then it says this, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosened and he began to speak. And the first thing out of his mouth was that he was praising God. And then a few verses later, when Mary shows up, I mean, this is she's an unwed young mother. There's lots of stuff standing against her, but, but her response to this whole thing, when she, she's at Zachariah's house, she said, Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. The mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name, right? That's where they both were, because Gabriel gave them exactly what they needed. And here's what I want to tell you tonight. I think I want you to go away with this, and that is this. That the reason that we're here tonight, the reason we have a lit Christ candle, the reason we're going to sing the songs we are, the reason you're going to celebrate what you are tonight and tomorrow, is because one greater than Gabriel is here. There is one who has come from God who is ready and able and, and actively giving every person exactly what they need. First, in atoning for our sins on the cross. I'm going to talk about that more tomorrow, actually. But he's also giving us exactly what we need in order to believe, because the cross won't make a bit of difference to your life if you don't believe. You have to believe. You have to get where Zachariah and Mary got. You have to say, my soul glorifies the Lord, or when your mouth finally opens, you say, you praise God. You, ha you have to get to that point where you accept that God is God, and you are not, and you needed provision, and it was given, and it was given in Jesus, and it is for you, and that is good news, not bad news. And you, and you have to recognize, listen, if, if, if things have been hard on you, if, if a lie has felt like a kick in the pants, you may think you're Mary, but you might be Zachariah. It may be extraordinarily loving that you are having difficulty in some kind of way. I don't know. I don't, I don't presume to know exactly why every bit of suffering has come. There's lots of other reasons in the Bible people suffer besides spiritual denseness. So don't think that I'm saying that all suffering comes from God disciplining us into belief. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is almost none of us receive rebuke, humiliation, suffering, and go, oh, I know what's happening. I think, God's, I think God's trying to get my attention. He's telling me I'm not really a doubter. He's telling me that I'm a skeptic, and I was supposed to receive this good news and be happy about it, and I'm not. And he had to give me a kick in the pants. And if I don't believe, then he's only got two options. He can either leave me alone or kick me harder. They used to say in, in the South, you know what, if you, don't, if you don't pass this test, you'll get to take it again. And one also greater than Gabriel is here for those of us who are in the position of Mary, who are just frankly confused. There are promises throughout the Bible. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all of your heart. And just read about the life of Jesus. There is nobody who rebuked and humiliated and afflicted pain as therapeutically and as lovingly and as purposefully as Jesus to people who are being lost. And there is nobody who more tenderly explained basic need to confused people like Jesus. And it is the same Jesus who would call you to act like these two people right now and, and believe and to praise God and love him. So do that. If you haven't believed before, believe right now. 
Tell the person you came with. Don't be a skeptic. Don't take this test again. And if you're confused, Scripture says everywhere to seek and you will find. Because this moment only means something and we're only going somewhere if we recognize and embrace the fact that somebody greater than Gabriel has come. Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you'd help us in this Christmas time to enjoy and embrace that you have given the world exactly what it needs. You've given us a Savior in Christ, and you have given us someone who will reach a doubter and a skeptic all the same, who loves the cynic, who loves the confused person, who reaches out to them, and who gives people exactly what they need. And I pray, Father, that you would give all of us in every area of our life exactly what we need. And we we would realize that the fulfillment of that need is going to be in Jesus, the one greater than Gabriel. We pray in his name. Amen.